0: For show notes from this episode, visit SustainableAmbition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to be joined today by my friend Dominic DeMarco. And you're probably going to hear me call him Mimo, actually, because that's how I refer to him and speak to him. So we went to the University of Virginia together for undergrad and have stayed in touch since. So Mimo, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Kathy. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited for this. And as an intro to this episode, I wanted to share why I wanted to have Mimo on. Then That's for two reasons. First, I'm interested in speaking with people who have engaged in activities that require endurance and resilience. Um, And that's because I believe our careers are a journey that require both. And I'm curious if those who've engaged in such activities as through hiking, ultra marathons, Ironmans, long distance cycling, even marathons, have learning from those experiences to apply to how we might lead more sustainable lives and work. And you'll hear that Mimo has several of these experiences. And uh, the other reason I wanted to have Mimo on is that he followed a non-traditional career path early on coming out of undergrad, and he is now the managing director of his own company, DeMarco IP, which is a full-service patent search firm serving patent attorneys within law firms and corporations worldwide. He is an expert patent searcher, search manager, and now also trains searchers. And if you're not familiar with this work, essentially, Mimo's company works in partnership with patent attorneys to understand if an inventor has a patentable idea and provides the support to back it up. Did I get that right, Mimo?
1: Yep, yep. That's a, uh, that's a good, healthy, it's uh, a good summary.
0: Yes, yes, very good. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But where I wanted to start the conversation was with these endurance activities. Can you tell us a little bit more about, I kind of was going to say these crazy activities, which they're not really crazy activities, but some may see it as such, um, that you've taken on and what motivated you to want to do through hiking? And maybe you're, you might have to explain to people what through hiking is and also doing long distance
1: cycling. So that is that's, uh, that's an easy one to identify where I got bit by the bug. Um, When I was a kid, I had my grandparents actually live just off of the Appalachian Trail. Um, So they had retired from federal government employment of 25, 30 years and had bought a piece of property in Madison County, Virginia, um, which was four miles away from This place called Big Meadows, which was this wonderful stop on the Appalachian Trail. It's also on the Skyline Drive where you could go for Blackberry pancakes. So when I was a kid, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, my parents and I would go to Madison County, Syria, Virginia, stay at my grandparents. And every Saturday morning and Sunday morning, there would be a mandatory four mile hike to Big Meadows where we would have pancakes and a four mile hike home. And I hated it, absolutely detested it. And I swore I would never do, you know, I hated hiking. I hated exercise. It was too close to like, you know, I, mean, I was a, you know, sort of hudgy-ish, out of shape kid. A four-mile hike is hard, um, especially when you haven't had breakfast yet. You know, and, and, and so I wouldn't get breakfast until I was done with this four-mile hike. And, you know, four miles now isn't that big a deal. But back then, that was, that was a two-and-a-half-hour hike for me, at least, um, you know, with lots of complaining. So I threw in the towel and that stuff. And then it wasn't until uh, till later. They had a family friend named Dr. McCoy, who actually just passed uh, last year at age 102. Um, but he had done the Appalachian Trail twice back in the 1960s and 70s. And they introduced me to him and they would always say, you know, they never said his name, just Dr. McCoy. They would always say, that's Dr. McCoy. He hiked the Appalachian Trail twice. You know, and it was like, it was like uh, little angels would be singing behind you. And so, you know, between the me struggling and failing and not being able to hike, and then having this godlike person held up as the greatest human being ever, um, you know, the the fact that he had a, a you know a medical degree and was a doctor and like a highly esteemed surgeon for 30 years was irrelevant. He had hiked the Appalachian Trail twice. That was much more important. Um so you know, eventually I was came to my own thing where it was like, okay, how do I conquer my first weakness? And then how do I start reaching this status? And so that came together pretty easily, you know, in in my thinking as a a young 20-year-old who was just like many 20-year-olds trying to figure out what to do.
0: Yeah. And what was appealing about that status to you? Like, so was that, like, did you think this would be beneficial to you or was it just kind of like, you wanted to have that, that thing where people kind of respected you for having done this amazing feat.
1: Uh, I'm definitely going to say it was not done for external validation. It was definitely internal validation. It was, I was a bit of, you know, like many people in their early twenties, you know, a bit aimless. I, I didn't really know what direction I should go with my life you know, the uh, the traditional come out of college, get a job. Um, that just didn't really appeal to me. You know, like, like I wasn't, I could tell, I mean, I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't ready to to go work a nine to five. I mean, I probably could have, and I might have evolved into that role, uh, but that wasn't really the time or the place for that. And this provided an opportunity for me to actually get a lot more internal validation. It was a, a, a chance to challenge myself and find out, you know find out my own limits my own mental and physical limits um you know it was something that i had never i mean i certainly didn't train for it i didn't i didn't come from a cross country but if i had been smart i would have like run cross country all of high school or something so that i could have been trained to, to hike but instead i you know sat around playing computer games and reading really bad fantasy novels and, and eating donuts and then going to college and drinking a lot of beer which was very poor training for uh, for through hiking <laughs>
0: For sure. For sure. So then what did you, how did you prepare yourself then to actually get ready for these? And did like, when you were starting to plan and you like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and go hike the Appalachian trail. Like, did you set some goals around this for yourself or was it just like, okay, I'm going to, I know I'm not ready to go get a job. I'm going to go ahead and like go do this adventure. And so how did you define, did you define success for yourself around this or how did you think about
1: it? So it's funny because, okay, so let me step back. So I went to go hike the Appalachian Trail for the first time um, in 1994. And then, you know, let me give the full thing. And then I actually ended up stress fracturing both legs um, that year and then having to go back and finish it in 1995. And then the trip that truly really was most beneficial was then in the following year in 1996, I went out west with the Pacific Crest Trail um, and then had, you know, did some later trips where I went off of, to work on the Continental Divide and bicycle trips and things like that. But that very first trip in 1994, um, I was an ignorant boob who did no, you know, there really wasn't any homework. Um, you know, the Internet didn't exist. I couldn't just get on, you know, I couldn't get on the Internet and Bing and Google Chrome. You know, I couldn't just Google Appalachian Trail planning training plan. You know, instead it was. You know, I did. I, I was reading Backpacker magazine and they said, you know, you should go do practice trips. And so I went someplace and I did a three day backpacking trip. My first it was the first backpacking trip I'd ever done. And, you know, it was three days. And I don't know if you've ever backpacked, but, but the food was terrible and I didn't hardly eat any of it. And I made all of these terrible calculations based on that. You know, I found I thought I'd be able to live on fifteen hundred kilocalories a day. Food-wise, you know, because that's all I ate on this three-day backpacking trip. You know, little did I know it was just because I didn't have any appetite. Because I was, you know, it was hot and and you know. But yeah, it was just it, it was very very just ignorance. There was uh, there was very little anticipatory planning. It wasn't until later that I became um, a lot more experienced. Even you know even a month into that very first trip, I knew ten thousand times more than I did before I started.
0: So it's almost like in this case, it sounds like you learned on the job, if you will. And yes, as you're doing so. and
1: I, you, I made a lot of poor choices.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you're dating us, too, which is totally fine. But it's like, yes, folks, the Internet was not what it once, you know, what it is <laughs> yeah. today. And like um, I remember you having like a book even for the PCT and like yeah. kind of guiding you for that and how to plan for it. So it's like from that, you know, those early trips, then like what did you learn to prepare yourself for like when you did go to? Do the PCT say, or when you rode across country?
1: So, so you know, the PCT was my my favorite trip, and, then, and to the audience, this is one that uh, the Kathy actually came out and, and joined me on uh, for a week. Uh, which was one of the highlights of the trip. Um, it was a the, highlight
0: event for me of my life, <laughs> frankly, and it was my first long backpacking trip. So, yeah. Yeah, she
1: she really uh, she she stepped into the uh, the whirlwind on that one. It's yes. The, the uh, but that trip was fantastic because by then I had two years of experience. I you know made all my mistakes. I learned from them all, um, and it was very much a planning oriented trip because on that one you know you're looking at uh, a trek of two thousand six hundred and fifty miles. And you know there had been some really early guidebooks put together, and basically what the guidebooks were telling you was here are the places where you're going to be able to resupply. And when they say resupply, it doesn't mean that there's going to be you know a grocery store. You know what it says is there's a there's a, a post office, and you go holy crap, what am I going to do with a post office? And then you go okay, I'm going to be able to mail myself a package of camping food at this post office, and you have to have a, a teammate. You know I had. Uh, Aaron, Aaron Connor, uh, Jay Connor's uh, wife was my, I mean, I couldn't have done the trip without her help. Uh, you know, she mailed me every couple of weeks, she would get the packages there about two weeks before I arrived. It was sent to Nemo DeMarco care okay, general delivery. And, you know, I would have the food I needed to get from that post office to the next post office. And this, I mean, this was the stuff that like, I absolutely love this part of the planning, because it's, you know, as a number cruncher and an engineer, you know, Give me a spreadsheet. I'm happy, you know, because it was, okay, now it's going to be, you know, 250 miles from here to here. So if I'm going to be doing 25 miles a day, that's 10 miles, you know, that's 10 days of food. And so you a package 10 days of food. And now with enough experience, I knew, okay, I was like, so let's pack 4,000 calories per day. How can I get 4,000 calories per day? And I keep the weight to about 32 to 36 ounces. And I had, you know, the right you know, I had the right macros. I had enough protein. I had enough fats. I had enough carbohydrates. Um, and it's, you know, and, and I'll be honest, the 4,000 calories was not enough. Um, I probably needed closer to six or 7,000 per day. Um, because I ended up, I lost about 0. 0.7 to 0. 0.8 pounds per day, uh, for the first two months of that trip. Um, but it was just awesome being able to do the logistics beforehand. You know, I went to Costco. I bought, you know, I bought 25 pounds of cashews. You know, I bought you know like 40 pounds of couscous. I mail ordered a 50-pound bag of TVP textured vegetable protein. Um, you know, I got all of these uh, you know instant bean soups. You know, it was just and you had all of this food and you had a you know, and you had the plan on how you were going to execute and it was uh, you know it was a it was an organizational fantasy. I mean, it was just so much fun.
0: Well, and I, I have to say, like this type of planning is so important and um, getting into those nuances and details. Mimo and I have done a couple trips together and one of our last ones, the Vermont Trail, Mimo oh. went, went ahead and allowed me to help like do the food, which of course he should ask me to do, but I was not as adept at knowing like how much food is actually X number of calories. And I did not pack us enough food for my, what I was responsible for. So we got lucky out on the trail that there were some people exiting um as we were starting the trail. I don't know if you remember this. And like they kindly were like, hey, we have this extra food. Would you like it? Um, of course, you might not do that now in pandemic days, but like we were like, uh yeah, we'll take that from you. <laughs> um, so the planning is really important when you when it comes to this too.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, and it's funny you talk about the planning. And you know, as you just alluded to with your own experience, you know, the planning you do when you're still a newbie at any activity is so different than the planning you do once you have experience, you know, like, you know, I, I, you know, I know that later we're going to segue into the work stuff, but it's like, you know, I, I laugh about that all the time with my work stuff. I say, you know, I worked for somebody for 10 years and that gave me an opportunity to make all my mistakes, you know, while I was on his dime, And then when I was finally out of my own company, it was like, Oh, okay. I already know what not to do. You know, now I can do all these things that I think would be a more ideal way. And it's the same way with, you know, the endurance activities, you know, the decisions I was making when I was a newbie are completely different than the decision I was making, you know, a year or two even a month down the road.
0: Yeah. I, that's really interesting. And I'm curious, cause you, you say that, you know, there's a couple other um, events that you, you didn't end up completing and you say right. that this built a ton of character for you. And, I find this one of them, like hiking the Continental Divide Trail. Like I feel like I got lucky because then I was able to go and hike with Mimo for three weeks on the Continental. Um, well, on the Colorado Trail, um, yeah. which was, again, a highlight experience for me in my life. And so you and then you also attempted to bicycle 3000 miles across Europe. So from times of adversity, like I'm curious if you plan for times of adversity and then what do you what did you learn from various experiences from any of them? I mean, even two stress fractals that two stress fractures from the first one, like that's not fun either.
1: It's so I'll, I'll start. I'll go in chronological order. So the uh, the stress fractures were my first year on the Appalachian Trail, and it was from so I was still learning what I was physically capable of, and this is something anybody who does uh, athletics, you know, has to learn, and you know, and it's a painful lesson. You know, most people, especially who folks who are self coached, which is ninety nine percent of us, you know, we don't know where that that tranche of where we should be is you know if you go above it you know you're 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 pushing too hard too fast whatever it might be go below it you're not really pushing yourself a level you should you could be pushing yourself and everybody has to find where their level is and and you know that kind of relates to actually the happiness within those activities you know because you can you could potentially be up here and be unhappy because you're pushing too hard you know and sometimes you need it's helpful to have an external coach you know you know, when you're 22, you don't have the money and skill set to, to hire an external coach. Plus, you're a little too vanity oriented never admit you need one. Um, but, you know, I was pushing myself too hard. I was walking. So I was doing about 30 to 35 miles a day of hiking on the Appalachian Trail, you know, up and down the, the mountains of, of the East Coast, which are brutal. I mean, they're just straight up and down. I mean, they, you know, anybody on the West Coast, let me tell you. Your mountains may be taller, but they're nothing on the East coast stuff, which is just like jagged rocks up and down. Um, and so I was doing 30 to 35 miles a day. And I was, you know, I said, Hey, this, this isn't hard. Like, I think I can go faster. And so I was like, okay, let me try and bump it up to 40. day. And unfortunately the only way for somebody my size, like I'm just, you know, I'm not a gazelle. Uh, you know, I'm. if I was doing, you know, if I was doing sports, I'd be a common am a Clydesdale, you know, I'm sitting at 200 pounds on a, on a you know, is where my healthy weight is. Um, the only way for me to speed up was basically to run down hills, and so I would run down hills in my big giant mountain boots, which meant heel, 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 heel stomping. And so I would heel stomp all the way down a mountain. By
0: the way, you know, with the pack on, with yeah, weight well, on your back too. Yes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so eventually, yeah, stress fracture both of my uh, both of my my what was it tibias on the front, and I got to the point where I, you know, I had to crawl to a road and. and and hitchhike to a town and call a friend and say, come pick me up. Um, but that was the first time I'd ever, you know, that was the first time I'd ever pushed myself to failure. Mm-hmm. And that's something, you know, that's something that's now been, you know, back then, you know, 30 years ago, you don't push yourself to failure. Nobody's failed. Failure is bad. Now I look back and I realize, holy crap, that's what we all push for now. You know, you read every every magazine you read about success talks about people pushing themselves to failure, whether it's sports. Or more importantly, business, you know, because failure is actually where you learn more sometimes than success. Because when you get success, is it because you did something or is it because you got lucky or could you have been more successful? You know, like you don't know where your limits are. And that first failure was a taught me a lot. And it also taught me resilience because, you know, I was able to come back from that. And I actually decided, you know, it took me like about a month, month and a half to physically heal. Um, by then, the the hiking season had ended. And I was like, you know, I gained enough confidence. I got enough positives from that experience that I'm willing to dedicate another year of my life. Well, you know, and of course, when you're, you know, 22 and 23, a year of your life doesn't mean anything, you know, because you're going to live forever. Uh, you know, if I said that now at my great old age, you know, a year is a long time. That would be a huge commitment. But back then it meant nothing to me to say, you know what, I'm I'm purposely going to get a job that I'm only going to work for six months so that I can go on another hike next year. And that set the, that set the stage for doing that forward. And I probably, you know, if I had been successful without that failure, I probably would have been a one and done through hiker, you know, because I would have set a goal and I would have met my goal. And then I would have been like, okay, let's move on to the next activity in life and, you know, gotten a job. But instead, because I failed, it gave me that resiliency and it gave me the desire to go back and go back again and go back again. So I definitely had a, you know, a life altering experience.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And so it's almost like, did, was it, did it become then kind of like each of these experiences gives me an opportunity to grow and learn. So let me go try it again. And I'm sure there was maybe also, I mean, you probably you enjoyed being out there. So I don't know. Did you end up getting addicted to it, both for like the growth and the just the experience of it?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, as somebody who's done uh, you know long distance activities, running, bicycling, um, you know, there is a certain chemical high. You know, you get that endorphin high, and I definitely had that while on these adventures and on these trips. I mean, it was just a continuous endorphin high of, you know, moving at three and a half to four miles an hour, you know, hiking pace, you know, every two hours, you take a 10 minute break, you eat some granola, put some carbs in you, and then you keep moving, you just keep doing it ad nausea. And it's just a, you know, a chemical physical feedback. But then it was also as a maturing adult, you know, trying to find their place in the world, it was giving me so much more confidence. Um, you know, we have, a, you know, there's, there's the old classic saying of fake it till you make it. And, it's true. You know, it's particularly true. You know, I think it's particularly true for young men, you know, where we project confidence, we project, you know, this attitude that we know everything. And, and, you know, it's not until you're much later that you really are able to acknowledge, you know, that you don't know everything. You don't know the answers to everything. And this was my transition, you know, for me as an emotional You know, in my emotional maturity, these trips were able to actually give me the core of confidence, self-confidence that allowed me to then try other things and fail at other things or succeed at other things. Um, But it gave me, you know, the emotional strength to do other things in my life later.
0: Ah, that's so amazing. And I, I'm curious if there's anything else around that memo, either if you can say a little bit more about like, how did it give you that confidence? Or if there's other learning that you feel like, and you've already been sharing a number of things, but other learnings that you've brought into your day-to-day life from having done these experiences.
1: So, so let's see. So there is one that I'll actually, I will not take credit for, I'm gonna give this one to uh, to my to my first long-term boss whom I worked for for 10 years. Um, and, and when I first started working for him, I would quit my job every six months and he would get so furious at me. And, you know, cause he'd go, you're so good at what you do. You're so good. I just wish you could just dedicate yourself to it and focus on it. And, you know, to me, I was like, I don't, you know, I mean like at that point in my career, it was still just, something to pay the bills. You know, I wasn't passionate about it. I wasn't that interested in it. It was something that put money in my bank account. And, but, you know, he would, and I would, I'd quit. I'd go on a four month adventure. You know, I'd go cycling across the country, you know, the U.S. And I'd go to Europe and go try and cycling over there, which was one of my failures. Um, discovered that being able to speak languages other than English does have benefits. And I didn't have that skill. <laughs> that was a, that was a tough, that was a tough thing failure actually, because that was not a physical failure. That was actually an emotional failure Mm. because to be surrounded by people and have no means of communicating with them was just emotionally too difficult for me Mm. Uh, at that point in my life. You know, I thought I could be on an Island uh, and that was the maturation that I was going through at that point in my life, uh, realizing that it it was time to stop being an Island. It was Mm. time to start bringing others in, which is how I ended up, you know, Shortly thereafter, you know, meeting my wife and, and falling in love and, and developing, you know, having a, a more complete and full life. Um, but So my boss was, you know, I'd come back from these trips and he would go, I go, hey, you know, I noticed you uh, need some help still. Mind if I uh, take up my old position? And he would drop an obscenity and go. The one thing that kills me is you're so good at your job that you can get away with murder. And I was like, man, that is a that is that is something I'm going to remember forever. And I tell the people you know, like I have employees now. and I tell them the same thing. I tell people everywhere in any activity. If you're really good at what you can do, you can get away with anything you want. You know, if you're the if you're an incredibly good programmer or coder. You know, it's like it, you know, that means you can leverage that to a new job here, a new job there, you come back to your original company, people will be extremely forgiving of whatever choices you make as long as, you know, you're not criminal or or, you know, <laughs> mentally unstable. But if you're really good and people like working with you, the world is your oyster. You can do whatever you want. You know, doors will open when you're really good. And but you've got to take advantage of that. You can't be afraid of that skill and that knowledge. And, and, you know, he inadvertently taught me that because, you know, five years in a row, I said, see you later. <laughs> and then every single time I would come back and he would have no choice. He would be like, you're so good at your job. Everybody loves working with you. The clients know you. We want you back. And I'd be like, OK, and he, you know, then he would always say, you know, but no pay raise for you. And I'd be like Well, oh, you know what? We won't push on that one. You know? Un- unemployment was a little bit more than the whatever 3% it is now. So <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: right. I love this. And I love it to just really simply focus people on like, look, if you do good work, you're really good at what you do. And people like working with you, right? Yes. It goes along. those are two different things. Right. And And that goes a really long way, you know? So, and I want to say, so, you know, you went and you did kind of like, the the through hiking and all of these different experiences. And then you you found this work with um doing patent work. And for most people, doing what you did, I think my sense is you followed your heart a bit, Mimo, but like a lot of people, when they don't do just the traditional thing, like you were like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. A lot of people kind of, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this personally, um, especially as I've been learning about adult stages of development, that some people are like, okay, I'm just going to do this should, because I'm not quite sure what else I should do. Mm -hmm. And that's how we start to learn about ourselves and start to see like, oh, I like this. I don't like that. Right. And so, and then we can hone from there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but for you, you took a different path. And oftentimes that takes a lot of courage and I'm curious if you saw it in that vein. Like, did you see it as being courageous, stepping off that a, a traditional path and, and what maybe gave you that courage to do so?
1: Well, so I'll say flat out, I could not have done it without the, I don't want to say tacit support or, or specific support, but without, without the support of my family. I mean, I was very, very fortunate. You know, I came from an upper middle class. My parents... You know, were able to pay for my undergraduate uh, college. You know, so I came out of undergrad with no debt, and that was the greatest gift I could have been given. You know, you know, did they limit the colleges that I was allowed to choose from? Absolutely, because they were able to look at that financial choice and say, you know, Mimo, we'll pay for college if you go to an in-state university in Virginia. You know, so it's like, OK, you've got these great schools, James Madison, you know, George Mason, uh, you know, William and Mary, University of Virginia, Virginia Tech. And there's like another half dozen that are in the state of Virginia. And so it wasn't like I was being truly limited, you know. And, and if they had said, we want you to go to the Northern Virginia Community College for two years and then transfer and do two years at a big time university, I would have been OK with that, too, because they were making, you know, they were much more mature than I was. You know, they're adults. I'm a kid, you know but they had the they had the strength and willingness to say no and to guide me in a a pathway that was going to set me up for success and you know I'm I was just like every other youngster I want to push back against my parents and do whatever the hell I want I want to go to some private you know school where I can be super special in a class of six people but they were like you know no no you know it's not the financial return on this just isn't there and they were very very numbers oriented on that um and so they very you know but they were like coming out of school debt free is monstrous. And so I had that that privilege. I mean, that's really the the right word. It was a privilege that I was able to come out of school debt free, which gave me the freedom to do a lot of things. And then they didn't give me the negative emotional baggage uh, that most people receive. Getting positives is nice, but what we really unfortunately respond to quite often is negatives. You know, and if you're getting that negative, that not having the job is, you know, you can get 12, you know, it's like the old, I mean, I don't know you ever, it's like the uh, what's his name? Jackson, the coach of the Lakers, used to talk about his uh, you know, his sandwiches. You know, two positives, one negative, two positives. Not even a, not even a one, 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 but like two, one, two, you know, like you've if you don't have so many positives, you know, it's never going to overpower that negative. Like, I didn't get those super duper negatives for not having a job. You know, it was, oh, you know, our son Mima was still finding himself, he's still figuring out what he wants to do. You know, I, and I did have a fallback. I, you know, I did have an undergraduate degree in engineering, which is a much better fallback than many other you know, other degrees that people come out of undergrad with, um, you know, so I had already demonstrated to potential employers that I was adaptable and could learn and, and could do technical work, which is huge. Um, you know, and so, but it was really because of my parents that I was able to have that resilience. You know, they weren't hitting me over the head with negativity uh, and they were allowing me to, to figure out my own path. And as a parent now, you know, I look at my own kids and I go, man, I like, I don't know how they did it because you know, we have such guardrails and guidelines on how we determine success. You know, there's very clear ones, you know, and it's like, how do you make sure you don't have that tone in your voice when you talk about what your kids are doing or when you talk to your peers when they do a non-traditional path? It's really hard to not look down your nose at them and be like, you're a moron, like get with the program, (laughs) get a freaking normal job. You know, when they're, Choosing to go work on a co-op, or they're, you know, not, or they're pursuing a semi-pro cycling career that pays them, you know, uh, five thousand dollars a year. You know, like there's nothing wrong with that. You know, live. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love that. And I I do want to ask this because you and I were starting to talk about this um, before we got on and we were talking about success. And I'd love for you just based on what you're sharing, because it's so important. I think it is that we all hear these different narratives around what success is. And I think society defines it quite narrowly. And I'm, what I'm hearing you say is your parents gave you that space and that support yeah. to, to find your way and didn't hold you to this narrow definition of what finding personal success for you and how you were going to shape your life. They didn't hold you to this narrow view of what that needed to look like. So when you think about it now, like how do you think about success?
1: It's hard because success is success is pretty clearly defined in America. I mean, we, it's capitalism. You know, this is, this is the heart and soul of capitalism. You know, you go, who's, who's going to be on the cover of Time Magazine? Who's going to be on the cover, you know, on the Fortune 500 list? You know, who's going to be on Fast Company and Inc Magazine? You know, it's Elon Musk, it's Steve Jobs, it's Bill Gates. These are the successful people in, in America. But, You know, there's there's how many hundreds of millions of us and then there's billions of people elsewhere in the world. and There has to be other ways of defining success except for the the, not even the one percent, the point zero 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 one percent. And you know, you and I were talking about this earlier. And it's so important to realize that there's other ways of measuring success. You know, do you have a career that puts a smile on your face? You know, do you have a home life that puts a smile on your face? Do you have hobbies that put a smile on your face? You know, do you have things you can talk about when you go to your neighborhood bar that you're passionate about? You know, these are all signs of success. You know, you know, things that counter depression, anything that makes you not unhappy is a success. You know. Uh, to me, you know, we have this big push that the only way to be successful is to start a company, you know, get to the point where you can have an IPO and, you know, get a bunch of money from a venture, venture capitalist, you know, and, and, then, and then get out, you know, with a six million, you know, $6 billion parachute. That's the only measure of success. And that's just not fair because, number one, that's not a pathway that's open to everybody. You know, yes, there are a select few people that are able to follow that pathway, as well as lots of people who try and fail. But for the 99 percent of the rest of us, who maybe don't want to do that, or that's not the the direction we want to go, it's not the, even the pathway that would make us happy. You know, there has to be more. There has to be, like, to me, you know, finding a trade that you work with your hands. You know, whether you're an electrician, a plumber, whether you're a wood, you know, woodworker. One of my best friends hiking back in you know, 25 years ago was a farrier. You know, he did the GI bill and he became a farrier and he was so happy. And he would, you know, he would follow like, there's some, like an Oregon trail wagon group that he would follow for years. And he was their farrier and he would shoe all the horses. And like, he would just light up talking about it. And I was like, holy crap, this is a guy who found success. Talk about a non-traditional path, you know, and and then he ended up meeting, meeting a woman who was an author and fell, they fell in love. And then but they, she was like, wait, I write books. I can come up with creative ideas while we're on the wagon trail. You know, and then they would have you know, their winters, they wouldn't be traveling, so then that would be her primary writing time when I don't know what he was doing, other blacksmith work. But you know, they found happiness. And I was like, it was meeting people like that and realizing that it doesn't just have to be get your initial nine to five, starter job at the bottom rung of some corporation. You know, and no offense to you, but you know, or, you know, go go to business school. You know, get your get your MBA, move up the ladder, and you know, and keep trying to you know leap, do these little leaps up. And don't be wrong; there's plenty of happiness in there. I've got lots of friends who follow the traditional paths, and they've all found their happiness. But you have to know that that's not the only way. You know, finding just you know, and then likewise with our hobbies our external activities. You know, if you can find stuff that you're passionate about, that's you know. It doesn't have to be heavy and deep. Just things that make you smile. Just any, you know, you know anything that keeps us off antidepressants <laughs> is a good, is a success.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, I love all of that, and I think um, you know. Yeah, some of the traditional shoulds for some of us they work, and then but for many people they are they they feel fearful to go and take an alternative path. And I think what I'm hearing you say is like be attracted to those things that put a smile on your face, and kind of search for those things um, that do so. And we've talked about that here at Sustainable Ambition, like look, it's a lot for me about this um, mindset is about defining success for yourself on your own terms and defining your own success metrics. It's not about following the should, it's really moving more towards, you know, what would you do if you could? And, you know, following your heart a bit more. I'm curious, just as perhaps as a final kind of wrapping up, Mima, this has been so great, um, is what do you know on the other side at this stage, having started a business, running your own business? I know we didn't go too deep into that, but um, you know, what, if somebody were to want to follow a tradition, non-traditional path, say early on in their career or later on, even if they're later stage and they're now like, Hey, I want to go out on my own, you know, do you have any counsel or things that you think they should think about?
1: The willingness to try, you know, we, we, there's been a lot of press and a lot of literature about fixed mindsets versus growth mindset. Um, and I think that translates very, very much to us and work. And we talk about, people mostly talk about it in an educational setting, you know, with regard to your kids. You know, you want your kids to have a growth mindset so that they're learning things rather than rejecting education. But we don't really talk about it with regard to adults. Um, We are, as adults, are much more prone to a fixed mindset, and and I think you know, and it's it's actually something I talk about in my work when I do training with new, you know, with not just the new hires I hire who are all you know in their early twenties and have a much more flexible and growth mindset, but when I go into companies and do training where I'm working with you know forty year olds and fifty year olds, sixty year olds, and you know you don't want to be ageist against them, but as you get older you're much more likely to have a fixed mindset and technology is changing and what we're supposed to be able to do and and expected to do everything is moving so fast you know and i know this is true for everybody you know because when our when my kids are 50 they're going to be saying the same thing everything's moving so fast and when our parents were 50 they were saying the same thing. When our grandparents were 50, they were saying the same thing. And so it's the same problems over and over again. And it's you just have to be, you know, have that growth mindset at all times with regard to all things. And it's it, it means being able to, you know, just be willing to try, you know, try stuff, fail, succeed. It doesn't matter even though, but it's not even like the big picture. It's, it's the micro try. Uh, we had a we have a thing. so. One of the things when, when I you know, have hired and trained new people is I want them to be uh, button testers. So, you know, we have, so at work, I will, we were using this horrific uh, user interface, which has like, at the top, it looks like, uh, it looks like Microsoft Word, you know, with all like the ribbon at the top. And it has like, it had like 70 different little buttons. And you had no idea what any of them did. and. I always found that the people who were willing to click every single one of those buttons, you know, they had that little OCD behavior where they were like, what do all these do? And they click, 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 click. Those are the ones who ended up being the most successful at their job because those are the ones who were willing to be like, screw it. What's the worst case scenario? Computer crashes, who cares? You know, maybe there's some button up here that's going to make my life better. Let's go find out. And, you know, I think that translates to all aspects of life. Be willing to push those weird buttons that you don't know what they do and see what happens. What's the worst case scenario? You know, you're not talking about, you know, chopping your leg off and frostbite. It's the button on a computer. Who cares? All right. Damn. So that, was, that got me off on a... Big tangent.
0: No, I love that. I mean, I love this both like leaning into growth mindset, but also really being willing to try. And I think that that, you know, like you're saying, what's the worst that can happen? And I'm also yeah. hearing there's so much juice in learning and trying something. And even if you do fail, that's where the learning is. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I actually want to throw in one final question, because one of the other things that... Um, I know we talked about again before we got started was that um, you know running an, your own business is no joke, right? It can be demanding and yet um, you have a family and you're pretty committed to finding joy and happiness in a holistic life. And I'm curious, like, how do you stay committed to that? How do you, do you put structures in place? Like how do you sustain yourself or your commitment to your own happiness in this holistic life?
1: It's hard. And, and I, and I think the easiest way is finding people you trust. Um, that's, what's been most important for me to be able to balance work in life. You know, when I first started my own company, you know, one of the lessons I got early from my father was, you know, any job you have, you give hundred percent, absolutely. You always give your best, you know, give a hundred percent when it's your own name, when you're on the letterhead, that's when you give 110%, 120%, 130%. That's when, you know, the, the work week is nine days long. You know, there, there is no, you know, there is no limit on what you do when you're first starting out. And it's your name on the letterhead. You know, no project is too big. No task is too menial. You do everything. Um, and I got that from both of my parents because my mom actually was an entrepreneur and started her own business as well, um you know, and, and it's having role models like that that has been very, very helpful. Um, and so but learning to bring people in and then actually trust them. You know, you're not you're not bringing in a clone of yourself. You, And that's something that most people it's what I wanted to do originally. You know, I wanted to bring people in who are clones of myself. That's how you get into the rut of everybody hiring somebody who has the exact same background they have. Who looks the same way they do? Who went to the same schools they went to. You know, you want to bring people in. You know, you want some of that because you want the same skill sets. But then you also want to bring in uh, somebody who has different skill sets, and you have to just empower them and trust them. And that's something that's it's taken me a long time to learn how to do. Um, but now I know, and it's good for the business and it's good for my mental health to be able to say, you know, I had. a, a a woman, Jennifer, working with me for about seven or eight years. And I had to be able to say, Jennifer, I trust you. I'm going to take a two-week vacation. I'm going to go to Europe, and I'm going to go ride in Paris, West Paris, which is this uh, 1,200-kilometer ridiculous cycling trip. And I will not look at a computer. I will not look at a phone, and I will not be able to look at anything. And for a week afterwards, I'm not going to be able to look at anything because my brain's going to be destroyed. But Jennifer... I trust you. Take care of the business. You know, here's the next invoice number that needs to be sent out. Here's my inbox. You can look at everything. You know, she could look at stuff that I don't want her to look at, but I have to trust her to just own it and do it. And that's something, you know, especially amongst entrepreneurs, uh, it doesn't. It's so hard to trust I mean, because you know you started a business because you felt like you were the only person in the world who could do something, and. Trusting somebody to run it while you're gone, you know, on vacation, whether it's a Friday or the month of January, you know, it doesn't mean you still can't, you're not the the man. It just means that you're going to let somebody else have a different viewpoint and a little different vantage, and it's okay. You know, did things go perfectly all the time? Heck no. There are plenty of things that didn't go the way I would have wanted them to go, and that's okay, and that's, Mm. that's something that's actually taken a very long time to learn, and there's no... You know and, and you know this from working with people there's no switch you can switch you know you can't just go today I'm going to start trusting people you know it's gotta be baby steps mm. you know hey take a Friday off okay did the company fail on Friday because you took the day off no okay so next month let's take Friday and Monday off and you go okay baby step and then you just have to slowly work this out and you develop that rapport and then the next thing you know you're like okay well, you know, Jennifer wanted to move on and do other activities. and I'm happy for her. Now I need to groom somebody else to be that person for me so that I know that there's somebody whom I can trust and give me the freedom to lead a full and complete life. Um, because, you know, yes, my name is still on the letterhead, but it doesn't mean I have to be the only person who touches everything. And that's a very, very difficult thing to learn. But, uh, but learning to trust, that's the key.
0: Yeah, that's fabulous. Well, Mima, I could talk to you for a long time. This has been fabulous. Thank you so much for being on with me. And if people like need patent support, like in help, where can they find you?
1: So I run a a patent search company. Uh, You know, you talked about one avenue, which was supporting individual inventors. Uh, Our primary focus is actually helping companies clear products. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so it's actually... uh, Companies that want to, you know, whatever you see sold at a Walmart, Target, Home Depot, uh, all of those products are cleared. You know, so they hire attorneys, and the attorneys hire somebody like me to review the the, the patent literature and help them make uh, managed risk, you know, informed decisions on whether to roll products out. But uh, Demarco IP is the name of our company, and that's what we do. Um, I'm very good at it, but you know, and there's and there's lots of other people who are very good at it as well. I'm always happy to point people towards the best service provider.
0: Yes, very good. Very good. Well, thank you again for being on Mima. I so appreciate it. And um, I just look forward to sharing this with others because there's a lot of great insights in here, both in terms of, gosh, if people actually want to do some like crazy adventures themselves and learning there, but really how those lessons can apply to our everyday lives, as well as. To feel more confident and comfortable in following their heart and finding their own sense of happiness and defining their own success. So thank you for being a role model of that and giving everyone permission to really lean into that.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, Kathy.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me.
1: Speak with you next time.